Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikbat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvatisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. We just thank you for our brother and Shamash uh, Wayne, and pray your uh, blessing. Uh, help us to hear what you have to say through uh, your servant, O oh God. And we thank, I just thank you for my brother and uh, for our for our friendship, O oh God, and for the pillar that he is in this community, O oh God. And uh, um, we thank you that uh, we have uh, so many uh, leaders and um, that are willing to step in and, and serve, O oh God, during this busy time. And uh, we pray that your word would go forth and encourage your people. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. What a wonderful time of the year this is. It's high holiday season. It's a time of atonement. It's a time of repentance and returning to the Lord. It's a season of renewal, a season of restoration. It's a season of re-entering into the wholeness, the shalom of our Lord. Remember, brothers and sisters, that in Hebrew, shalom means perfect peace and perfect wholeness. It does not mean peace as a result of the absence of conflict. It doesn't mean that I have shalom today because I did not get a traffic ticket on my way to shul. It doesn't mean goodness because the Coke machine actually did not swallow my change today. Shalom means perfect wholeness, peace, and goodness. This morning, us here and those that might be listening by podcast, we're going to go on a wonderful journey together. It's going to be a play in two acts, a double feature at the movie, if you will. And some of you might find the transition to be the two quite jarring. That's okay. I thought that it would be neat right after Yom Kippur to present the liturgical highlights of the high priesthood within the temple itself that occurred on every Yom Kippur during the first and second temple times. I thought that that would just be you know, appropriate for this time of year. But then we're going to switch gears big time and we're going to explore a fascinating, fascinating overview of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to ever so briefly, because time doesn't allow to go us to go into more depth, we're going to pour over the healing ministry specifically of Yeshua within this Gospel. And brothers and sisters, if you just stay with me, that seems to be my catchphrase when I'm up here. If you just hang with me, if you stay with me, I promise each and every one of you that by the time we're done, none of you will ever read the Gospel of Mark 
the same way again. It's a bold statement for me to make. Hang with me. Any ancient mythology that you read, I'm nerdy like that, I read a lot of it. The pagan deities are really fickle and moody and they kind of act like 11-year-old girls. What you won't find are descriptions of these deities as gods of love. Erotic love, maybe, but not pure love. You might find an all-powerful description. You might find an all-wise description, but you will not find a god of pure power and might and love until you meet the one true God of Israel and the world. Of all the research that I've done, I cannot find any evidence whatsoever that convinces me that any other pagan deity was considered a God of pure love. Hashem is the only one. He created a world in a very orderly way, and therefore life within His creation must mirror this shalom, this holiness in creation. A pure, holy God cannot abide unholiness or unwholeness in his children. And therefore, the boundaries between cleanliness and uncleanliness and obedience to the Levitical laws of ritual purity were not seen as constrictive, oppressive burdens. They were seen as liturgical acts of worship and welcomed the Shekhinah, or the very essential presence of Hashem within the Holy of Holies in the temple. And moreover, the blessings of Shalom into the family, into life, into health, happiness, longevity, and abundance in life. You've all heard me talk about ritual purity from the Bema before. I don't do so to be repetitive. I do so because it's these very ritual purity laws that those who believe in what's called replacement theology, in other words, that the church has somehow replaced Israel and somehow the Torah is no longer applicable. These ritual purity laws are usually their first targets, but my God the God who's the same today, yesterday, and forever, did not write a book that he knew one day would be obsolete. I find that just silly. I'll stop. Now, this does not mean that I believe that we should be sacrificing animals. I don't. But I very strongly do believe that the spirit behind these laws is eternal, timeless, and grasping the spirit behind these laws we're only guaranteed to enrich our own lives. Amen? Here is a very generic floor plan of the temple as it stood in Yeshua's lifetime. Now, this little area right here, everybody see that? This little area right there was called the Holy of Holies. And it's where the Hebrews believed that the presence of God literally dwelt on earth. And this place was so holy that only the priest could enter this area only once a year and on the day of Yom Kippur. Congressional leader David, in the Yom Kippur morning service, did a beautiful job of teaching us, um, of teaching us basically the rituals went on. So I'm going to be very quick and very brief. 
uh, the high priest brought the blood of a bull as a purification offering for himself and his own family. He brought a ram as a burnt offering, and from the Israelite community itself, the high priest received two goats. One goat was offered as a purification offering for the sins of the Israelite people as a whole. The blood of this goat and the bull aforementioned was sprinkled into the Holy of Holies. And it was this blood that was sprinkled there which made atonement for the sin of all Israel. This area of the very presence of God himself, the Holy of Holies, was sealed off from the rest of the temple by a heavily woven, strong, really heavy curtain that served as a barrier between the holy part of the temple and the secular world. Okay, can everybody see that? Does that make sense to everybody? In fact, fun fact, this is, this is true. We actually, have, we actually have documentation that there were some high priests that would not enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur without insisting that a rope be tied to his ankle so that if he went in there behind the curtain and the presence of God was just too much for him to handle and he dropped dead of a heart attack that the other Levite priests would be able to pull him out and bury him. That's true. That's a fun fact. The second goat, the high priest, would lay his hands on this goat, confess all the sins of the, of the people of Israel that year, and then send this goat out into the wilderness. Pardon me. Now, of course, the high priest himself, as well as those that participated in this temple service, or were even outside of the temple proper within these areas, they all had to be in a state of what's called ritual purity. Now, as I've said a thousand times from this Bema, but I'll say it a hundred thousand times more, just because you're ritually impure, that does not mean that any sin has occurred. Ritual impurity did not make you morally impure, but the reverse of that statement was true. If you were morally impure because you were a murderer, or you were involved in prostitution, or you were a thief, or you were committing adultery, or if you were committing idolatry, this automatically made you ritually impure. Ritual impurity can happen even if no sin has occurred. And it doesn't mean that God didn't love you if you were ritually impure. All that ritual impurity meant is that you could not participate in temple procedures on proper temple grounds. That's all it meant. Things that made you ritually impure that were not sinful in nature were handling corpses in burial. Certainly no sin, but it did leave you ritually impure. Touching or butchering unclean animals or touching blood in any way, shape, or form. Healthy marital relations within the sanctity of marriage. Certainly no sin. In fact, in Torah, it's encouraged. Uh, but it did leave you in a state of ritual impurity for a time. A female's normal biological cycle. Certainly no sin. Or a woman having a baby, certainly no sin. 
But this did leave one in a state of ritual impurity for a time. And if I have contact with someone who is bleeding or someone who has an open skin sore or a skin lesion or someone who has just handled a corpse, I become ritually impure as well. So ritual impurity was contagious. Now at the same time, now listen to this because this is what, I'm not saying this is a statement of judgment. I'm saying this just as a scholastic statement. Listen, this is something that the people who do believe that the Torah is somehow obsolete can't seem to wrap their heads around. Um, Just because ritual impurity was contagious, it was also very easily remedied. In almost 100% of the cases where no blatant sin had occurred, the Torah commanded you to wash your body, wash your clothes, and stay inside until the morning sun came up, and then you are in a state of ritual purity again. That's it. <laughs> if I could tell you, brothers and sisters, how many mornings in college I watched the sun come up out of my window, having argued all night with those that tried to convince that Jew, but believe in Jesus guy that, I don't know, he lives over there, trying to convince me about replacement theology, trying to, trying to teach me that Ritual purity laws are condemning and show that God is an angry, violent God without grace. This, forgive me, I'm being sarcastic now. This, brothers and sisters, was this violent, angry God's consequence for ritual impurity. Wash your body, wash your clothes, stay inside for a prescribed amount of time until the sun comes up, then you're pure again. This is the punishment of a harsh, unloving God. <laughs> I, <laughs> wow, I, I would have loved it. I would have loved it, brothers and sisters, if when I was 15 years old and I took my parents' new Oldsmobile out without their permission, picked up a carload of my buddies and went to the punk club that it was Rockets. It was right up here on Broad Street in Laurel to see Nitzer Ebb in concert. And then... On the way home, all hyper on caffeine, hydroplaned it into a telephone pole. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I would have loved it. I would have loved it if all my parents had said to me was, <laughs> all right, Wayne, oh, you've really done it now. You've disobeyed us. You've practically killed yourself. You don't even have a real driver's license. And you've totaled our car. So this buster is what you're going to do, young man. You march yourself right upstairs. Take a bath. Do a load of laundry. And you'd better get a good night's sleep, young man. And don't come out of your room until the sun comes up at 5.30 a.m. Oh my God, I would have loved it if that had been my consequence. But that did not happen, brothers and sisters. And... Curiously enough, I really don't seem to remember the rest of that summer. We've all heard time and time again that any animal sacrificed or offered to Hashem on temple grounds had to be, as Mary Haller said in her drosh, unblemished. Unblemished. In a state, it had to be in a state of wholeness, 
of perfection, of shalom, to be sacrificed to a perfect and whole God. Do you all understand the connection? This is an excerpt from Leviticus 22. Pardon me again. We're going to start from right here. When anyone presents a communion sacrifice to the Lord from the herd or the flock in fulfillment of a vow or as a voluntarily a voluntary offering, if it is to find acceptance, it must be unblemished. It shall not have any blemish. One that is blind or lame or maimed or one that has running lesions, sores, or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord. Do not put any such animal on the altar as an offering to the Lord. An ox or a sheep that has a leg that is too long or with stunted growth will not be accepted as a votive sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, any animal that was blemished, it was also by default 100% ritually impure. And here is the rub. Here's where it gets very prickly and very uncomfortable for us in the 20th century. This also extended to the priesthood itself. I'm paraphrasing from Leviticus 21. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, None of your descendants throughout their generations who has any blemish shall come forward to offer the food of his God. Anyone who has any of the following blemishes may not come forward. He who is blind or lame or has a split lip, probably referring to a cleft palate, or a limb too long, or a broken leg or arm, or is afflicted with sores or scabs, may not enter through the veil of the Holy of Holies, nor draw near to the altar on account of his blemish. When you understand this, you understand why Yeshua and the Pharisees didn't get along too well. Because by the time of the second temple, it is clear, it's clear in the New Testament that the Pharisees had imposed this strict standard of ritual purity laws not only upon the priesthood, but extended them to the entire Israelite population. It was believed, therefore, that anyone born with a birth defect or with a handicap or who is afflicted with psoriasis or leprosy was the way that they were because of sin in their own lives or they were living out the punishment of sin committed by their ancestors. And what this meant is that anyone with a physical deformity, brothers and sisters, you know about it with lepers, but anyone that had a physical deformity was marginalized by society. And just like a blemished animal, this would put the one with the deformity, whether a birth defect or because of an accident that happened while they were alive, this would put one in a state of permanent blemishment, which meant that they were 100% ritually impure for the rest of their lives. And this was the Pharisees' train of thought. 
since you cannot cure blindness or deafness or birth defects by simply bathing in a mikvah. You can't cure lameness or paralysis or leprosy by offering a sacrifice. And again, brothers and sisters, this is where it gets really heavy. You are therefore seen as permanently blemished, permanently ritually impure, with absolutely no hope of being able to participate in temple services and therefore with no hope of atonement at Yom Kippur. No hope of forgiveness for yourself nor for your ancestors. You were unredeemable. Imagine how that would feel. Imagine how that would feel. And on that depressing downer, we're going to switch gears. We're going to pick it up again. I want to introduce the Gospel of Mark. As we all know, the books of the Brit HaChadashah were written in Greek. However, this does not mean that they were originally written in Greek. I have some personal, very strong opinions about that. Um, It just means that the manuscripts that we have now and are most familiar with are in Greek. Some of these books, the Greek is pristine. It's like Shakespeare is to English. Examples, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. The Greek is mwah. But then there's some books in the Brit HaChadashah, on the other hand, where the Greek is chopped liver. Two examples are the book of Revelation. Another example is the Gospel of Mark. On the surface, brothers and sisters, the Gospel of Mark, just if you look at the Greek, it looks like it was written by a fifth grader. The grammar is clunky, and there are a lot of verb forms that don't agree with their noun forms. For instance, if I was to say, I drives the car, or he give the present to she, it just sounds weird, and this happens everywhere in Mark. A lot of the sentences start with prepositions, and that sounds very awkward in English, and it it, it sounds very awkward in Greek as well. Now, at the exact same time, this is where I get excited because I just find this fascinating, it's clear that the writer was a Messianic Jew and was very familiar with Hebrew scriptures. And this is where it gets really, just really interesting. A lot of vocabulary in Mark is very, very elementary. Very basic. Um, in Mark, Yeshua gets on a donkey. In Matthew, in Matthew, Yeshua mounts a donkey. In Mark, Yeshua steps off the boat. In Luke, Yeshua disembarks the boat. In Mark, you have this sharp contrast of very elementary vocabulary with very vivid, haunting, strong vocabulary as well. For instance, when it says that Yeshua was moved with compassion for the people, the actual Greek word is splanknia, which anyone who is familiar with human anatomy, splanknia refers to the the bowels. It refers to the intestines. So a more accurate translation might be Yeshua's stomach churned for them or Yeshua's stomach was tied in knots for them. Very, very vivid. 
implying that Yeshua was deeply, profoundly moved. In Mark, Yeshua exercises unclean spirits. He does the same in Matthew and Luke, but in Matthew and Luke, the demons just kind of fade away into the air. In Mark, the demons leave howling, kicking, and screaming. And it is this this contrast of clunky grammar and this amazingly sharp contrast with very vivid vocabulary with very elementary vocabulary that gives Mark a real gritty feeling to it in the Greek. Um, Raise your hand if you've seen the movie The Godfather. Right, The French Connection. Um, What's another one? Dirty Harry. It just has a gritty atmosphere to it. I'll give you another example. Give you another one. At Yeshua's baptism, on coming out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open, and the spirit like a dove descended upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens saying, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The heavens torn open translates this very strong word in the Greek. It's a word so strong, this word only exists twice in the entire Gospels. It's this Greek word, it's pronounced something like schiz. But for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to just say skis. Skis. Now, everybody, we, we get the word scissors from this root. We get the word incisors from this root. These teeth. Everybody imagine eating a piece of pizza. Take that bite off, and it's your incisors. They actually tear off that piece to send it back to your mouth to chew. So, you know, incisors, it also, excuse me, it also is the root of that very crippling mental illness, schizophrenia which basically literally means in English, mind torn asunder. So this Greek word has a very aggressive, almost almost violent connotation. The heavens were torn absolutely asunder, which leaves a very fascinating tension. You have to ask yourself, during Yeshua's baptism, who was powerful enough to do the tearing? Who was powerful enough to do the skeezing. I'll leave you guys to ponder that on your own. We're now together going to go ever so briefly the healing ministry in Mark. I've prepared this slide as just a summary because each one of these is a sermon unto itself, but we're just going to scratch the surface. Yeshua cleanses a man with leprosy. And that is the word that is used, brothers and sisters. It is not heals the man with leprosy. It makes him clean. Then Yeshua asked the the cleansed man to go to the priests and offer the sacrifices as commanded in the Torah so that the priests could declare him clean. Priests, of course, could not heal. Only Yeshua could heal. But the priests could diagnose, so to speak, when a skin condition made someone unclean. They could also declare someone clean when that skin condition healed. So this, brothers and sisters, is a Messiah who has not overturned the ritual purity laws. No, this 
is a Messiah who took the ritual purity laws for granted. Yeshua heals the 12-year hemorrhage of the woman with the issue of blood who just touches the hem of Yeshua's garment. I personally believe that this was the tzitzit of his tallit. Yeshua raises Peter's mother-in-law from a quote-unquote state of death in the Greek. He also raises from the dead the synagogue attendant Jairus' daughter. He heals a lame man by declaring his sins forgiven and gives him the ability to pick up his mat and walk to show the Pharisees that Yeshua has the power to forgive sin. Yeshua heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath and in so doing offends the Pharisees. It's also noteworthy that in the Greek it describes the man's hand not healed but restored. Yeshua restores the hearing of a deaf, mute man. He also does the latter to a Gentile man. In both cases, it is says that Yeshua restores their sight. Have all of you had a chance to skim over this slide? Huh? Do you see the dynamic here, brothers and sisters? In the healing ministry of Mark, Yeshua is taking those that would otherwise be permanently blemished and unblemishing them. Permanently unblemishing them. Those that would have no hope of atonement nor redemption. Yeshua is restoring them to a state of unblemishment. Let's revisit what we've already seen in Leviticus 21. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, None of your descendants throughout their generations who has any blemish shall come forward to offer the food of his God. Anyone who has any of the following blemishes may not come forward. He who is blind, the healing and restoration of sight to the Jew and the Gentile blind man. Or lame, the healing of the paralytic man on his mat. Or has a split lip or a limb too long, the healing of the man with the withered hand. Or a broken leg or arm who is afflicted with sores or scabs, the cleansing of the leper may not enter through the veil of the Holy of Holies, nor draw near to the altar on account of his blemish. The rules against contact with blood and the complete healing of the woman's hemorrhage. The rules against contact with a corpse and the raising of Peter's mother-in-law and of Jairus' daughter. Yeshua is loving those who would be permanently and hopelessly barred from the very presence of the Almighty by healing their otherwise permanent blemishes and rendering them unblemished, whole, and imparting upon them shalom. I'm going to leave you this Shabbat with a thought. Skis. I told you this word is so strong it only appears twice in the entire Gospels. Mark 15. 
when Yeshua was being crucified upon the tree, Yeshua gave a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the Holy of Holies was skeezed, completely torn, rendered asunder from top to bottom, skeezed. Through Messiah's blood, Hashem has reconciled all of us to him. And now we are forever present in his sight without separation and in the presence of his Shekhinah, the Holy of Holies, whole and without blemish and with shalom. On this season of atonement and renewal and complete restoration in him, Shabbat Shalom. Shalom.